True Crime South Africa is published in conjunction with Arena Holdings, publishers of Times Live, Business Live, Sowetan Live and others. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily represent the views of Arena Holdings and its affiliates. The following episode may contain sensitive material including descriptions of violence, sexual assault or graphic descriptions of injuries to victims. If you feel you may be triggered by such material, please consider this before accessing our content. To access trauma counselling or services, please see the helpline information on our show notes. Welcome to True Crime South Africa. I'm your host, Nicole Engelbrecht, and you're listening to a Spotlight Minisode, in which we discuss cases that are in the media at the moment, as well as other true crime-related topics. Before we get into today's episode, I'd like to thank our new Patreons for the week. A huge thank you goes out to Chanel Fantonda, Renee, Blanche Bezadenhout, Renee Erasmus, Troy Mokawim, and Michelle Pretorius. Thank you so much for your support on Patreon. It is hugely appreciated. I released the first ever Patreon-exclusive episode this week, so if you'd like to enjoy one additional episode of True Crime South Africa per month, get a shout-out on the podcast and know that you're helping the show to grow and improve, I'll leave a link to our Patreon hub in the show notes. Another huge thank you goes out to Magdalene Duval, who donated to the show through PayPal, which is our once-off donation option. Thank you so much, Magdalene. As always, any form of support for the show is greatly appreciated, and it doesn't have to be financial. Sharing of episodes, inviting your friends and family to listen, and interacting on social media are all great ways to contribute towards the show's growth and are equally appreciated. We've had quite a few interesting developments in South African true crime in the last few weeks, and I'll share some of them with you today. South Africa has the third highest number of serial killers in the world, after America and the United Kingdom. There are many reasons for that high number, including the socio-economic conditions in the country. But what's becoming more clear is that we're actually just really good at catching serial killers compared to many other countries in the world. On average, South Africa will arrest a serial offender within six weeks of having identified the series, whereas in most countries, that number is closer to a year. This skill at catching this type of criminal is often a chicken-and-egg type of situation, because really we had no choice but to become skilled at it after we had an explosion of serial killers being active in the 90s. Another consideration is that because our police service is centralised under one unit across the country, we're better able to share and record information and see patterns in crimes. Many other countries have separate policing units for each town, county or estate, and very often there's no communication between those units. So although our number seems very high for our population size, Perhaps it's just that some other countries are not actually identifying murders as being related and therefore classing offenders as serial killers. Either way, very recently in KwaZulu-Natal, the sugar cane fields seem to have become a dumping ground for a new serial killer. 
In April this year, bodies started to be found in sugarcane fields in Mtualume, on the south coast of KwaZulu-Natal. On the 25th of April, sisters Nosipo and Akona Gumeda, who were aged 16 and 25 respectively, were found deceased in a field after they'd been reported missing in March. 23-year-old Baja Dume was found deceased on the 6th of July after being reported missing two weeks before that. In August, Zama Chiliza had been on her way to a local clinic when she disappeared. Her body was found soon after. After the eventual discovery of a fifth as yet unnamed victim, the phrase serial killer was already on the lips of the press and public. Then, in mid-August, two arrests were made. The main suspect, Sipamandle Como, was booked out of Scottborough police cells for a medical check and to carry out a pointing out of scenes and deliver a confession which he had agreed to provide. He was then taken back to his cell, where he hung himself with the cord from his tracksuit pants. The other suspect was released due to lack of evidence and the charges against him were dropped. The Independent Police Investigative Directorate, or IPID, is tasked with investigating all cases of death in custody, and their feedback on this case was that no foul play was suspected in the death of Cornwall. According to a police spokesperson, though, the investigation has not yet been closed, and members from Pretoria have been added to the task force in KZN to continue investigations. The reason for this is that Cornwall allegedly indicated in his confession that there are more victims than the five that have been found. The ages of the victims range between 16 and 38, and two of the victims were found in the week that the arrests were made on a piece of private farmland owned by a farmer, Siagasa. The farmer put up a reward of 20,000 rand for the arrest of the perpetrator at the time, and it's unknown whether this contributed to the arrests. The victims were all severely decomposed, and although KZN is a humid area, it is winter in SA right now, so that indicates that the victims were in the field for a significant amount of time. In an interview with ENCA, former SAPS profiler Gerard Labaskachny said that the two main aspects to look at when giving a preliminary identification of a series of murders is finding several bodies in the same geographical area, as well as the possibility of a DNA link between the victims, where there's been a sexual assault, or where DNA has been left behind by the killer. He said that the most responsible way of dealing with a group of murders, such as the Mtualume cases, is to assume that it is a series, until you are able to prove otherwise. In cases like this, our investigative psychology unit would be called in to provide a profile of the killer and look at evidence that could point to a possible psychologically motivated crime. Labaskachny noted that the first starting point in an investigation of serial murder, and really any murder, is to understand the victim and their last known whereabouts, 
as well as who they may have come into contact with. When asked how effective visible policing is in deterring serial killers, Labaskachny said that all it really does with serial killers is either make them stop for a period of time, or they simply move their hunting ground to an area that's not being looked at. He also mentioned, which we've seen in a lot of serial murders, that it's very likely that the killer would be luring his victims in with promises of employment. Sadly, with the increased level of unemployment due to the COVID pandemic, this will probably become an even greater lure to more people than it has been in the past. Since the discovery of the fifth victim, no further information has come to light around discoveries of other bodies. The fact that Sipamand Lekomo is now deceased means that we will never have the opportunity to disprove his confession. That may sound counterintuitive, but it's not uncommon for people to give a false confession for a wide variety of reasons. His suicide certainly points to the possibility that he was involved, as if he were giving a false confession as a misguided way of simply ending an intense interrogation, or if he did it for attention, which is also not uncommon, it would seem unlikely that he would then commit suicide. For now, the killings do appear to have stopped, and we can only hope that Cormor was the real killer. We do not know what modus operandi was used in these killings. We don't know if the victims were sexually assaulted, or if there was any recoverable DNA left behind. I'm glad that the investigation is continuing, not just because there could be more victims out there, but also because I don't think that this is a fair ending for the families of the victims. I'll keep an eye on this one and let you know if, if there are any updates. Also in the month of August, a long-awaited and much-anticipated conviction was passed down in the case of the murder of two young girls. Friends Marne Engelbrecht, 16, and Chanel Hugh, 17, were found deceased in their hostel at Hurskul Stella in the northwest on the 26th of May 2018. Very early on, the deaths were considered to possibly be suicides, as Chanel's body was found hanging from a stairwell banister, and Marno was found in a bathroom, also with the ligature around her neck. Very soon, though, it became evident to police that the girls had been murdered. Investigations into the background of the girls started to focus the attention on Chanel's ex-boyfriend, 19-year-old Xander Belsma. Shortly after the murders, it's alleged that Xander confessed to a private investigator and then handed himself over to police. He's remained in custody ever since. Belsma was described as a recluse who spent most of his time hunting wild animals, and it's been said that he could not accept the fact that Chanel had moved on from their relationship. Evidence of threatening text messages sent to the girls was presented in court, as well as testimony about Balesma having left a group of friends on the night of the murders while being intoxicated, and indicated that he was heading to the hostel. 
The girls were the only two pupils left in the hostel that night, as everyone had gone home for the weekend. The court would find that Balsma had knocked the girls unconscious before strangling them to death and then staging their bodies to look like suicides. During the trial, Balesmer attempted to recant his confession, saying that he was coerced into providing it. Despite this, he was found guilty and given two life sentences. His counsel has indicated that they will appeal both the conviction and the sentence. Whether there are grounds for appeal is up for debate, and although this case seems relatively clear-cut on the surface, there are many people who believe that Balesmer either did not commit the crime or that he didn't do it alone. I will need to do a lot more research into this case before I can form an opinion myself, and as soon as the court documents become available, I'll start looking into it for a full episode. Another long-awaited conviction came in the case of murdered couple Anisha and Joey Fanikak, who were raped and murdered in December 2017. I've only just skimmed the surface of this case, but I would hazard to say that it's one of the most brutal and disturbing cases I've heard of in a long time. Anisha and Joey owned a smallholding and rented land to a man called Kua Stradom, who ran a panel-beating business on the property along with his wife, Mersha. According to the court's findings, in December 2017, Kus Stradom decided that he didn't want to pay rent to the Fanikaks anymore, and so he hatched a plan to steal their land from them. He recruited four local men to assist them. Two brothers, Jack and Aaron Satole, and two other men called Alex Madau and Moses Rakube. Kurs then lured the woman to the farm by telling them that he wanted to buy a portion of it. On arrival, the group of people forced the woman, under threat of violence, to sign an agreement stating that they were giving the land to the Stradorms. The Zatole brothers then raped Anisha and Joey, allegedly while Mersha Stradorm watched. They then forced the woman to hand over their PIN numbers and bank cards. The group then killed the woman and transported their bodies to a nearby river where they burned their remains. They withdrew cash from the victim's bank accounts and made several purchases. The group was arrested not long after the murders. Kurt Stradorm committed suicide in prison last year, leaving his wife who was 30 years his junior, holding the bag along with her co-accused. All accused parties have now been found guilty on a range of charges, including two counts of murder, rape, robbery, and assault with intent to do grievous bodily harm. They'll be sentenced in October. I'll follow the sentencing and provide updates when they're available as well as a full-length episode on this case, which I have no doubt will be a pretty harrowing one. And that is your roundup of South African true crime news for the week. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe to the show on the app that you're using to listen right now. You can also follow us on social media. We're on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. I'll be back next Friday with a full case episode. Until then, 
Thank you for your support, and I'll chat to you soon.